morning, everybody. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Well, well, I know that uh, when we get to meet our Father in heaven, I think I speak for all of us. We don't want to hear him say, I never knew you. I personally want him to say, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. Fortunately, Father, you've given us more words, words about building our foundation on you, our rock, our salvation, so that when those endless spiritual and moral winds and earthquakes come and hit us, we can withstand them and not fall because we're built on the foundation of you, our rock. We thank you for that, and we love you. And we ask you to bless our pastor this morning as he gives us more insight and meaning and depth to your words and soften our hearts so that we can be like a sponge and just absorb all the teachings that you have for us to help us to live a better life. And in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. There is an important and often overlooked or unrecognized aspect of love, and that is this, uh, the warning, the, the caution, the lookout. To love someone is to warn them when danger is imminent. I learned and relearned this uh, this week. My children inherited a zip line uh, and wanted to put it up in the backyard. And... Um, Physically, I've been somewhat out of commission after a couple basketball incidents. And so uh, rather than helping them with the endeavor, I said, uh, before you ride it, uh, I need to inspect it just to test and see safety and all of that. Um, they didn't heed. Well, two of the kids did not relay that message to the oldest kid that warning, that loving parental care and concern for their bodies and their soul. So one kid comes in, you know, potential black eye. That was more because one brother with a broom was trying to move it, smacks him in the face. <laughs> and the fact that they did not allow the uh, building and code inspector <laughs> test things out and see things, uh, the first one to test the zipline came in with you know, busted up leg and a hurt side because he went flying into the tree that they had fixed it to. 
three Prescott boys, that's what you're going to get. I love them, therefore I warn them. And that's a silly illustration to begin uh, the ending of the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus, how he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, how he ends it, is the beginning of all of our decision. And that is, do we recognize his authority? Do we trust him as judge? Though this passage brings about one of the more difficult sayings and realities in Scripture, these warnings are a crucial aspect and helpful aspect of love. Again, if you love someone, you warn them when danger is imminent. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And I hope by the end of it, uh, I desire that we see his clothes isn't callous or mean. That these sayings can and do, in fact, lead towards life. So if you weren't familiar with Matthew's gospel, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of it are known as the Sermon on the Mount. Kind of the central core teaching of Christ uh, in this compact sermon. If you want a really good resource on it, the Bible Project is spending all year going through this, and I know the youth group is going through it as well, and so they send out a weekly playlist on Mondays with uh, reflection on the text and just doing a year-long deep dive into the Sermon on the Mount that's really, really helpful. And this sermon, in a nutshell, shows the way of Jesus and how it's all connected to the heart, and it ends with some warnings. From verse 13 all the way through 27, there's multiple warnings with this contrast that's going on. There's two ways, one that's narrow and one that's wide. There's two trees, one that bears good fruit, one that bears bad fruit. There's two claims here. There's two builders, two houses. And this is a common theme throughout uh, Jewish literature and scripture as a whole. If you'll recall Psalm 1, blessed is man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers, and his delights in the law of the Lord, and his law meditates day and night. Be like a tree, the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff which the wind drives away. A fuller account, Deuteronomy chapter 30, as the children of Israel are getting ready to enter into the promised land, uh, Moses is instructing him, and he says this, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. So when you boil it all down, there are two choices, two paths, and it's common throughout, again, the, the Jewish writings that we have in the Old Testament to set that before God's people is somewhat of a, a check of reality. 
you know, follow and obey God and experience the goodness and joy of obedience with him, or you choose sin and therefore death. And a lot of the themes that we find in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Jesus is recapitulating here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel as a whole. And so as Jesus is landing the proverbial plane in the sermon, bringing it all to a close, he shows there's dangers from the outside. He talks about that with the two paths. There's a a way that leads to destruction. He talks about there's these two gates and these two trees. There's false prophets as wolves in sheep's clothing. You're going to be known by, they are going to be known by their fruit. But he also uh, warns us against the dangers that come from the inside. And so in Jesus' critique, it's not just a point the finger at all the bad people out there. Whatever stereotypes you want to place of what makes a bad person out there. He doesn't do that. He says, yes, be aware of the dangers that are outside, but also beware of the dangers that lie within. Look in the mirror. Don't just simply point a finger. And what do we see in this closing? Well, perhaps the most shocking and difficult is this, that first, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, are entering eternal life. Or perhaps even more shocking isn't just not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but those who have a seeming performance within the world, that isn't a, determinant, a determination of one's place in the kingdom of God. And if you look at the claims that these people make, it's threefold, right? We prophesied, we cast out demons, and did many mighty works, all in your name. They're even addressing him as Lord. This isn't like what many of us would stereotype as like nominal Christians. Like they're going, well, we came to church on Christmas and Easter. Or, oh, we made a donation to the food bank. Or like, like just low level, I tried to be a good person. These people from all accounts would seem to be somewhat of the superstars of the faith. Some that you and I would look at and go, yeah, wow, they're doing stuff. Seemingly good stuff for the kingdom of God. And Jesus says plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me. John Stott says that their profession is four things. One, it's polite, it's orthodox, it's fervent, Lord, Lord, and it's public. And Jesus says to those, I never knew you, depart from me. The harsh reality that these words bring is this, that one can seem like they are with Jesus, doing all sorts of Jesus-y things in his name, even have tangible results, and Jesus can still call those individuals workers of lawlessness. How? Dale Bruner is often helpful. Favorite commentator on Matthew, he says this, We learn at least that it is possible to work for Jesus and yet not live under him. We can be intoxicated by the power of Jesus and yet be hostile to his hard commands. I never, ever really knew you. Get out of my face, you doers of the very opposite of my teachings, is his paraphrase. 
They believe that they know Jesus, but apparently they never gave him a chance to know them. I never really knew you. That is, they never gave him a chance to come into personal contact with their innermost life, the force of the biblical word know. It is strangely possible to serve and even to glorify Christ and yet in one's own personal life not to obey him. The fact that Jesus says many will present their Christocentric charismatic credentials at the judgment and that even then they will not get in should be frightening to us all. It means that just as a loving manner, sheep's clothing, earlier in the text, is not necessarily the real item, so Christ glorifying ministry in your name, in your name, in your name, is not always the real thing either. What Christ is showing us is that performance and results even is not a determiner of one's place in the kingdom of God. And so a couple questions arise. The first that I have is, well, why would anybody go about that? Like I think Anthony was talking about a week or two ago, like, why would you waste your time on Jesus-y type things? And I came across one quote that, that resonated, is that uh, Jesus saves, but he also sells. Jesus can be big business. And this isn't simply a critique of megachurch or the evangelical industrial complex, as it's been called. This exists in churches of any shape and size. The desire for power, the desire for performance, the desire for position is alive and well. And so maybe this is more of a hard saying for me, for Anthony, for elders, for people that have public positions in ministry. It's harder for me, I think, than it is for you a little bit. It's certainly sobering. So why would anybody be about this? Because there is a power that comes and a performance that is available within the church world. And there can be an intoxication with importance and meaningfulness and power from doing Jesus-y things. A sense of security comes from religion and spirituality in the name of Jesus. Again, whatever size or scale scope that's, that's in. And so there's a couple things that this text then brings up. First is this, that perhaps this is good news for some. It has become good news for me is that Jesus completely redefines the metrics of success in his kingdom. This teaching ought to curb our fascination today with finding ultimate meaning in numerical and quantitative growth, so-called, at all costs. I don't know if you've experienced this in your own life, or maybe I have a little bit more of a front row seat being a pastor, but there is a, a crass obsession with growth at all costs within churches. There's a handful of years ago, I went to a conference with uh, another group of pastors from another church. I get in the van to go down to the airport with them, and within two minutes, a guy that I had just met, knew nothing about, says to me, what are y'all running over there? I'm like, 
running, like a 5K, 10K marathon, we got, we got some runners. No. It, it's the uh, three Bs of churches is uh, most concern around butts in the seat, how many people you have, uh, buildings, how big, fancy, schmancy, lights, smoke, hazers, that sort of stuff, uh, and budgets, how much money you can accumulate. It, it's not much different than, you know, quarterly earning reports with publicly traded companies. Where you at? What y'all running? Being a church planter, often, your church growing, my response every time, what do you mean by that? And what people most of the time mean is, do you have more humans in the building? Not caring about what we're doing with said humans, what discipleship looks like, how are we loving, connecting, serving one another, are we showing the good news of Jesus to the world around us, just simply, you growing? You have more humans and more money and more... And I'll tell you one thing, there's a weird thing that happens when a church grows, and that is the, the pastors then become experts. So and we need to hear from them because they're all wise and, and have the template for it all. And it's a thing within the church industrial complex. And so this teaching at least gives us some pause on that, that a overly consumeristic overly capitalistic kind of church structure with church terminology does not automatically get a blessing of Jesus. Now, again, that's true also of smaller churches like us that think we're just holy because we're smaller and we rent a building and so automatically we're so much better than the other guys. That's also not true, and I'm not saying that either. We're all under the same gaze of Jesus, and we're all under the same judgment of Jesus. And so, again, Jesus gives us pause on what today is often in over-fascination with growth at all costs. And the second thing that I find even better news than the first is that Jesus is the one that ultimately sorts all of it out. If you read the Gospels as a whole, and Matthew in particular, there's no denying that God promises and Jesus promises that judgment is coming for all of humanity. You cannot read the Gospels honestly and ignore that fact, that Jesus says judgment is coming for all of humanity. And this is one of those passages that makes that reality really, really key clear. And the good news of God's judgment is that Jesus is the one who carries the sword. We don't. Jesus is the one that has that responsibility. We don't. And so Jesus, we see the story as a whole. He's the trustworthy one. He's the honest one. He's the righteous one. And so it's good news that he carries it because our appraisals are not always accurate. John Newton, the uh, former slave trader who converted, said this, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet someone I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss someone I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. And so what is the difference between in and out of the kingdom of God? Again, both now and eternally, 
if the right words, Lord, Lord, and the right works, we did all this in your name, aren't the keys to God's kingdom, what is? Well, Jesus makes it plain throughout the Sermon on the Mount and then in the close in verse 24 through 27. The keys to the kingdom are found in the foundation that one's life is built upon. And the way in which everyone builds a foundation is what they do with the words in the way of Jesus. This is 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. How we ultimately know the foundation we've built on is what we do with the words of Jesus in everyday life. And the way in which that thing that happens underneath the surface that no human eye can fully and completely discern is going to be revealed ultimately by a storm. And most commentators believe that what Jesus is speaking about here has kind of a twofold meaning, that first and foremost it is about the storm of God's impending and coming judgment. Ezekiel chapter 13 compares the, the coming judgment of God to that of a storm, and then others go, well, it's about the storms of life that reveal where your foundation is, and I think that it can be one of those both-and things. As Jesus closes his sermon, I hope that you don't hear that he's just asking you all to be good boys and girls and try hard and do better and get your act together. I, because that's not the message that if you do real good things, God's going to just reward you. Because again, this clarifies all of that. You can prophesy, cast out demons, do many mighty works in the name of Jesus and not be a part of his kingdom. So, so he's not after simple uh, moral performance or just kind of churchy-ish things. Jesus, all throughout the sermon and in the close, is after our hearts. And what he reveals to us is that God's kingdom isn't one of being saved or rescued by works and by one's performance, but that the faith that we have is shown and is demonstrated in a life. And again, this is the motif of Exodus, where Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might serve me, God, in the wilderness. God freed his people out of the hand of Pharaoh so that they might serve and worship as they went about into the land of promise. This is uh, repeated in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourself. We don't save ourselves. It is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone can boast. But then directly in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The life of faith in the heart is connected to the way in which we live. 
Dale Bruner, for the final time, says obedience to Jesus' words is not so much protection from troubles as protection in them. Just as rock under a house does not shield from storms, but supports during them. I don't think Jesus closed this sermon in this way to bring about a bunch of insecurity in us all. A bunch of fretting and fear and wondering, am I in or am I out? And and I also don't think Jesus closed this way so that we could look at others and go, I wonder if they're in or out. Is that rock? Is that bedrock under there? Is that some shifting sand that you're building on? It's not why he closes this way. But I think there is or seems to be an intent to bring about sobriety in one's life. Like to face reality and evaluate honestly who and what have we and are we building our life upon. At the end of the day, what is the foundation? What is the hope? What have you put your trust in ultimately? Who has authority? Who has the final say? Who is the one that dictates the terms of your life? It has repercussions now, and it has repercussions eternally. I came across one quote, R.T. France, which is an ironic name for an Irish scholar. Uh, He says, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but obeyed. It seems as though Jesus is concerned with the posture of our heart, with the foundation of our lives, above our performance. And so this can bring about some good news that Jesus redefines success very differently than we do. And if you look at the gospel accounts, even over the last few weeks of teachings, uh, a lot of Jesus's ministry is marked by rejection. Didn't have so much success with that one particular Samaritan village that kicked him out. He apparently wasn't a, a found to be a big fan. They, they didn't uh, elevate him in Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. He gives woes and judgment to those cities. And so even we see in the life and ministry of Jesus, it's almost surprising at how so-called, from our framework, unsuccessful Jesus was. He managed to gather 12 disciples. One of those guys betrayed him. That's not great. Everybody else pretty much denies and abandons him at the cross. I'm not attempting to be a a heretic, but his discipleship ministry seemed pretty unsuccessful after three years. And this is the result. He's dead on a cross. Everybody's abandoned him. Maybe the closest is like John, who's with his mother comforting. One out of 12, maybe? All right. Jesus. All of us look at that, and and if we're looking simply and merely from a human perspective, we're going, he's not very good at his job. 
But what he's doing in this teaching and through his life is he's redefining success. And he's teaching us that life with him, discipleship with him, apprenticeship with him, is one that is marked by dependency. One marked with knowing God, not using God. And that's the lesson the disciples had to learn over and over and over again. And by the time the resurrection comes and he empowers them with the Spirit, you see the church move forward in a subversive kind of power. Through persecution, through threats, through death, through all sorts of opposition, the church thrives as they live in right relationship with God, knowing him, depending on him, and trusting him. And that is shown in how they look to love the world around them. The temptation that they and we, I think, especially face today is to make this all about ourselves, to get overly inwardly focused, and then we play Christianity as though it's just simply performative. We go through motions, we learn some information, but our interior lives are not changed and transformed by the goodness of God. Because his way is different than the way we are so accustomed to. One of my favorite books, The Way of the Dragon, Way of the Lamb, Anthony recommended it to me, gosh, a decade ago probably. The subtitle is Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church that is Abandoned. And these two authors, Kyle Strobel, Jim and Goggin, say this, the focus is on my ability, my creativity, my potential. These become pistons driving the engine of self, resulting, Jesus tells us, in the eternal loss of self. No place for weakness exists in this view of reality. More important, no place exists for God. We don't reject God outright, but we retain the God of deism, who once did some powerful things, but generally is detached from our day-to-day -day lives. So instead of abiding, we pray for God to give us some of his power, Instead of growing into him who is our head, Ephesians 4.15, we ask him to give us some magic. Just make me stop sinning. Just make these temptations go away. And so on. Instead of entering into the way of weakness, we try to use God to become something powerful. So the close on the Sermon of the Mount gives us this. This crowd was astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Jesus was and is always going for something greater, better, and deeper within our hearts. This whole sermon that Jesus gives in Matthew 5 through 7 is pointing towards life and flourishing. And it is counter-cultural to how we mark life and flourishing today. You see that in the Beatitudes. And so he's showing us what it means to be human, what it means to experience life, what it means to be held and walk in union with him. And so this close, though sobering, it isn't 
callous. Because there's a kindness that Jesus gives us in showing us this way that we can follow him into. And the good news for me and for you is that Jesus is ultimately the judge and he doesn't, he doesn't get it wrong, which is a beautiful and terrifying thing. Jesus sees through it all. He sees us. He knows us. And he loves us there and invites us into life. He's made it clear. He's the entrance. He's the door. He's the gate. He's the road. He's the savior. He's the friend. And so maybe today it would be good for us to simply take his warnings seriously. And to allow him and open up our lives and our hearts because he already sees through it all. And repeat with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. When's the last time that you opened up your heart and allowed God, just said, God, test it all. Melt it all down. Remove anything that isn't from you and replace it with your love, your truth, your will, your way. It is a normal and good thing to be in the rhythm and and routine of everyday life. We wake up, get our coffee, go to church, back to work tomorrow for most of us go through trudgery, like there, there's, there's a beauty to just that routine. But then also there's times where we need to pause and just go, where am I at? What's the foundation? And for I think many of us, I hope many of us, what happens is it's like, yeah, I'm building my life on Christ, but then there's a lot of other stuff that just kind of gets in the way of that. And it's time for uh, not even a yard sale, like just there's a bunch of junk that needs to not even goodwill. It's not even worth giving away to other people. It's, it's a burn pile. So Jesus, you know, forgive me for all these toxic fumes that are going to, you know, melt the ozone, but uh, you can take it all and burn it all up. I don't, I don't know all your stories, where you're at. But let's open our lives up to Jesus. And let him tell us the truth, and may he give us ears to hear it. May we have the courage to take an honest and ruthless inventory of our lives to see what we're building on. And the name of this church is really the desire, the vision, the everything, is we want to be united and one with Christ and one another. Because that's the only foundation that's going to last. It's the only foundation that matters. It's the only one that is worth building on. And Jesus invites us and shows us what it means and how to go about following him and obeying him and everything. And so let's pray and respond now. So Jesus, we thank you that you tell us the truth, even when it's difficult to hear and sobering. I pray that you'd give us uh, wisdom and perspective and humility as we evaluate our lives in the light 
of your truth and your word. It's a weird thing to hold that you are completely loving, good, and kind, and you are an all-consuming fire, God. So today, may we be sobered by that reality, and whether for the first time or for the 50th, may we reevaluate our foundations and be placed on you, Christ. You and you alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen.